the unredacted after show chat and i am your host jenny hatch i am coming to you live a couple of hours after glenn and q and their guest jen just finished their show and my family's in town so i had other things i had to do normally i would have done the show right after they were finished but um today i was coloring with my three-year-old granddaughter and so had much more important things to do than this show. I just finished listening to the show and I have a few thoughts on moral panics and Pizzagate, Q, and Satanism. Number one, um, when Andre decided to change his name to Q, I knew that he was trolling everyone who believes the Q drops and proofs and we're all in with the Q movement. And so I saw it and it made me laugh. I thought it was hilarious, but um, it's obvious that he and Jen especially reject the idea of what the Q phenomenon was and frankly is. And as I listened to Jen talk about moral panics, and she used the whole uh, preschool satanic panics of the 90s as the illustration of how these things work. She very breezily and dismissively suggested that it was all just a big nothing. And then, you know, talked about a, a father who had been in prison and lost touch with his daughters and it was had real world consequences and she used the words false memory syndrome and talked about how professionals from psych the psychological world and psychiatry would share information at their conferences and that this further hyped up the the fraud around this moral panic. And it was just really interesting listening to her juxtaposed with my own lived experience. And so I'm going to share my story in this podcast because my story is a complete rebuttal to just about everything she said about false memories and psychologists who would implant episodes of ritual abuse and it's all just a big nothing. I did find it interesting that she herself had experimented with a coven and called herself a Wiccan as a young person. And um, 
she she never throughout the whole conversation she never disavowed what she had done as a young person she just talked about how she had become a journalist writing about these topics and again dismissive so i have some questions for her about what role she is playing or attempting to play in um whitewashing the history and retelling it under the banner of there's there's nothing here there's just nothing to see i'm just going to say a few words and if you haven't heard these words i'd like you to just google them or you know just you know think about what it comes up in your own mind when you hear them i'm going to say the name maria abramovic spirit cooking spirit cooking dinners pizzagate Tony Podesta, John Podesta. Do these names mean anything to you? Do you know anything about these people, what they do? Um, Again, here's my story. I'm going to try and tell it rather quickly because I don't really like thinking about it or talking about it, but it is my lived experience as someone who has, has lived this during my 54 years on planet Earth, um, you can't reject my lived experience. It is what it is. Can't say I'm a fantasist or a liar or um, psychotic. This is just what happened to me. So my parents, I believe, were traumatized and tortured during their youth in various settings at their school and tied to military bases where they grew up in the 30s and the 40s. They met each other, got married, had three kids, and then decided to move home to Detroit, where they happily joined with their church congregation and started living just suburban lifestyle in suburban Michigan. Um, My mother's fourth child was a miscarriage, and this is what I've been told my whole life was a miscarriage. I was her fifth pregnancy. And when I was born, I was a daughter who came after three sons and then this this miscarriage. And then my mom went on to have three more daughters and one more son. So we're a family, eight children, nine pregnancies, and mom and dad were all in with their life. They were staunch conservatives and very involved in the community. We were involved in the theatrical scene through community theaters and our church. And all of us kids were very involved in the the theater departments at our schools. And then um, we were faithful members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Most most people know us as Mormons, but we we were members of that church. And so this is how I was raised. This is how I grew up, uh, being taught my faith, my politics at at the knees of my parents. They, they literally taught me the gospel of Jesus Christ day by day with scripture study, faithful attendance to church every week. We were incredibly active in our church community, which included uh, Mitt Romney and his parents. They were in our stake, and my parents were friends with them to the point that when Mitt's dad, George Romney, who had been our governor, our stake president, and eventually he became the patriarch of our stake. When he died, my mother was invited to be the choral director for his funeral. 
she led led the music for that event and you know again close personal friends with the romneys so this is the circle that i grew up in and the life experiences i had until i was 18 and then i went to byu and i was there studying musical theater for a couple of years and then i came home after doing a year of a summer of summer stock theater in the Playmill Theater in West Yellowstone, Montana. I came home to Michigan and I met my husband in the Bloomfield Hills Singles Ward. Three weeks after we met, we got engaged. Three months later, later we were married. And uh, nine months and about 15 minutes after our wedding night, our daughter was born. So 20 years old, I'm a mother, I'm a wife, and starting my adult life. So we moved to Ohio when our daughter was six weeks old. My husband's work transferred us down there, Yellow Springs, Ohio. And while we were there, I went through what is termed a postpartum psychosis, which sometimes happens to women within the first year of a baby being born. They get into an altered state and uh, I went from a, a mania that lasted for about a month into full-blown psychosis. And my husband, deeply alarmed, called my parents. They came down, basically put us in the van and drove us back to Michigan to go to doctors and hospitals that um, my parents were uh, affiliated with and close to. And it just felt better to my family to take me to people they knew. So my parents and my husband tried to get me some help at Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan, where I had been born and where I had just given birth to my daughter. And as they were trying to get me help, I refused to sign myself in to the psychiatric unit. And so because of that, I was probated on a medical certificate to a state mental facility in Pontiac, Michigan, called Clinton Valley Center. That center is no longer there. It's been raised to the ground, but it was one of those old time mental institutions that were just a place where they kept uh, people who were mentally ill, who were long-term, how they were housed there for long-term because of crimes they had committed and they'd been deemed too crazy to go to prison. So that was a huge part of that hospital. And then it was just a facility for people who, you know, I think there were some homeless there and it just, you know, it was one of those old time mental institutions that have mostly, I think mostly in the country, they've been shut down. But this was 1989. I had just turned 21 years old the month before that hospitalization. And I ended up being in that hospital and also a private hospital for about six weeks. And during that time, I kept refusing to be medicated because I was breastfeeding my daughter and I didn't want to stop nursing her to go on medications. They wanted to put me on lithium and Haldol and some other drugs. And I, I just kept refusing and I refused for almost a month, 28 days in, I landed in front of a judge and pled my case. I, you know, said, I really don't want to take these drugs. I want to go home and resume taking care of my daughter. And the judge sentenced me to forced medications, 90 days incarceration, and I had to bow down to the law. So I was medicated with heavy doses of Stelazine, which is a drug that's similar to Thorazine. 
and lithium. And later on, I was put on Prozac and I was sent home to recover from this episode in my life. Since that time, in connecting with fellow uh, survivors or victims of sexual assault, ritual abuse, most notably my friend Fiona Barnett, who lives in Australia, what I've since learned is that when someone becomes altered, and this happens quite often when the person is 15, they will go through some sort of an episode or a suicidal depression, and then it tends to come back and bite them when they're 21. There's something about being 21 years old that brings up stuff. It's You're on the cusp of adulthood. It's when many people experience their first episode of schizophrenia. But 21 years old is a key age, and I was 21. I just turned 21 when I had the psychosis. But what I have learned is that when someone gets altered, it is evidence that their subconscious mind is attempting to break through to their conscious mind to teach them the truth about their lived experience. And I believe that's what was happening to me. In that psychotic state, I said things to my father that in my normal, good little Mormon girl perfectionism, I wouldn't have dreamed of saying to to him. And being in that altered state enabled me to tell him some things that he needed to hear, to get some things off my chest and just confront him directly. And um, I think I really freaked him out because um, later on that year, he told me that I shouldn't talk about what had happened to me. He said, Jen, people just won't understand you, you know, losing your mind. And now I believe he said that in the way that, Jen, people just might understand too well what has happened to you and in our home if you talk about this. He was the only person in my whole life, all these last 34 years, who said those words to me. You shouldn't talk about this. I made the decision to not only talk about my mental health challenges. I wrote a book about it. I was featured in Kathy Kendall Tackett's first book, uh, Postpartum Depression. It was a book for nurses that was used as a textbook. My story was the whole last chapter of her book. My my story was featured in another uh, doctoral thesis by a, a woman who was studying postpartum mental disorders. And then I have written hundreds of blog posts, comments, and comment sections, uh, my own book. And I've just talked about it ever since, what happened to me. And during the first 10 to 15 years after the initial breakdown, I really focused on my physical body and healing my physical brain with nutrients and was able to get off of the medications after about 14 months. I found a female psychiatrist who was willing to help me wean off of the medications. And I very carefully came off each drug, first lithium, then stelazine, and then I gradually came off Prozac. Coming off Prozac was one of the hardest things I have ever done. It is more difficult to get off Prozac and other antidepressants than it is to get off street drugs like heroin and LSD. The therapy world knows this. The detox world knows this. And if you decide you want to come off of your medications, you have to do it with the help of professionals and do it very, very slowly because it is so tenuous. You can become manic. You can become psychotic. You can become incredibly combative 
And so it's, it's just important to be under a doctor's care while you're weaning off of that medication. But I freed myself from the drugs, and then I went down a different path, searching for the truth. The truth about why I had this mental breakdown, that was the number one question I always had for the, the 13 years after. Why did this happen to me? I had such an amazing life. I grew up in such a great family. I met the man of my dreams or had this baby. Why did I go psychotic? It did not make any sense to me. So my healing journey began the day I got on my knees and I said, Father, I need help. I need you to guide me, to show me the way to wellness and healing. And what he guided me to was the purchase of a grain mill. And the Holy Spirit prompted me, if you will grind something fresh every day and eat it, that will be the foundation of your healing. So we did. We bought a grain mill and I started grinding wheat and seeds and making them into the foods that we ate in the form of pancakes and bread and waffles and cookies and pizza dough. And every day I would get my grinder out and grind something and then we would eat it freshly ground. And that has been the foundational step that I took to help heal my brain. Now, I did go through weeks and even months where I was not able to do that. I was too busy. Things were getting, you know, just when you have five kids, it's just a busy time. And so I did have moments where I I stepped away and we're eating more junk food. And I definitely felt that impact my mind. You know, it was like, okay, I've got to get back to basics. And for me, the basics were grinding it fresh every day. And we still do that today. That is how we usually start our day. I will grind up some kamut or some white wheat or something and make some hot cereal. We, you know, just make some cracked wheat and cook it up with some fruit. And that is how we start our day. Fruit and flax seeds. I love golden flax seeds because they taste like butter and they're so yummy. And so I have this, this meal that I make. And again, we eat it three or four times a week. It's a great way to start your day. Nourish my brain right from the get-go when I start my day. I have never fueled myself with caffeine, coffee, soda. Uh, We have a health code in my faith that disallows alcohol. So I've never boozed or, or drugged myself with street drugs. I've lived a pretty clean life in terms of my diet. And my parents always had a garden and my mom was always cooking from scratch. So I really didn't get into the, you know, crazy uh, American diet as much as my peers. And then I was highly influenced by my older sister-in-law, who was a vegetarian, to explore vegan eating and vegetarianism. And I've, I've done years of vegan eating and uh, really played around with what, what was the best diet for me, especially if I was pregnant and nursing and, um, you know, just have really explored my options in terms of nourishment. At this point, I'm clearly with the Weston Price nourishing traditions folks. I believe that is the most solid diet to eat, especially when it's cold out. And I've gotten the most bang for my my grocery buck um, buying traditional foods and cooking from scratch. So that's pretty much the diet we eat today is that Weston Price classic diet. Um, for 13 years, I focused on the physical, getting exercise. I did water aerobics and yoga and just love to go for long walks and bike rides. And that is how 
I kept myself physically fit, especially while I was pregnant. We did have four more children. And by focusing on getting enough sleep and nourishing myself like crazy after each birth, I did not have another mental breakdown after one of my children were born. And the numbers are about one out of every thousand women experiences a postpartum psychosis. And once you've had that experience, the number goes to one out of every six of those has another psychosis after the birth of a next baby. So the stress level that that, you know, manifested in me and my husband of like, am I going to give birth to this baby and just immediately get altered and psychotic? Nobody can reason with me. And I'm just lost in the clouds with Jesus. I had a religious psychosis uh, with the first one. It did not happen. And, and we were both so grateful for that, that um, the physical things really seemed to help um, to, to kind of carry me over that, that window of vulnerability. When moms have a new baby, you're not sleeping as well. Your nutrition can be up and down. But we just really zeroed in on making sure I got my sleep and I was properly nourished. And I pushed everything else away. Callings at church, volunteering, anything outside my home that could put a demand on me, I pushed it all away. And in Mormon culture, it's not easy to do that. There are many expectations and pressures on young families to serve. And I just told everybody, you know, talk to the hand. I am focusing on my baby and my mental health. And it was very important for me to take that stance because there's a lot of guilt tripping that goes on in Mormon culture. Step it up, push harder, do better, you know, always trying to perfect ourselves and who's the best at serving in the ward. There's just all this crazy competition. And so I just shoved it all aside and said, no, if I am in a mental hospital in a psychosis, I can't serve anybody at church or my family or take care of myself. I'm just a victim. So I felt like it was more important to focus on my own health and well-being and push everything outside my, my front door off. And then when I felt like I had more t- time and more energy, I would serve. I'd serve like crazy at church and in my community, doing all kinds of things, but always bowing down to if I was having symptoms of being off balance, I would say no to things. No, I'm not doing that. No, I'm going to stay focused on what needs to happen in my home. So by having that be my posture, I was able to make it through to my first memory. And my first memory came up on the day that we buried my older brother. He died of a drug overdose. His death was the trigger that opened up my mind to remembering what happened to me. Now, when you say, oh, I remembered, it's easy to think, oh, the person had some sort of a movie playing in their mind, sharing with them the details of every single thing that happened in real time to them when they were a child. That's not how it is. And that's why Jen, during the show, kind of just debunking and shoving aside the book that she mentioned, The Courage to Heal, as just a big nothing burger, can you believe these therapists were sharing this book and and trying to spread the word about this thing that doesn't exist? I mean, that book was my lifeline during a very vulnerable time. And then my therapist, 
encouraged me to buy the Courage to Heal workbook, which again, that year after my brother died, was my lifeline. So I, I found, felt myself feeling a little bit of heat, a little bit of anger as she dismissed this, this amazing book by Laura Davis that changed my life and honestly kept me sane during a very vulnerable time. And other survivors will tell you the same thing. These books, these types of therapists, support groups were key to us finding our footing in an in a insane situation. Because when you start to remember the facts about what happened to you, it can send you spinning into all kinds of crazy directions. And my number one goal was to be there for my family, to be there for my kids, and, and st- show up every day as a mom and take good care of them and not be dictated to by the things that happened to me during my childhood. And so to that cause, right after my brother died, I was contacted by the person who I outed as, uh, as being problematic in my life. And he immediately came back at me with an affidavit threatening to sue me. He sent this affidavit in the mail, demanded that I sign it and retract all of my claims. And then he wouldn't sue me. And my husband and I talked about it. We consulted with his father, who we loved and trusted, and determined that it was best to just give this man what he wanted because he was crazy. And we were really concerned about what he might do. And so I signed it and sent it back to him. I retracted my claims. And then I checked myself into a mental hospital for four days and was put on a suicide watch because I became suicidal. And I would, I didn't want my kids to see me in that state of mind. And I felt like it was asking my husband too much to say, Hey, would you be not only my husband, but also my therapist and provide me with whatever I need? It, it's not fair for the person who's remembering to expect their spouse or their friends to play this role in their lives. It's very powerful to reach out to the therapy community for support. And so, I, I was just blown away by the support that I received at the hospital from my church community, from my bishop, from my therapist. And I, I worked with two separate therapists. The first was a man from my church who had specialized in sexual and ritual abuse for his whole career. And the second was a homeopath massage therapist who specialized in sexual abuse. And she used uh, massage techniques and homeopathic remedies to treat trauma. And so working with these two people during that first year after my brother died was the key to me stepping out of that place of just extra vulnerability to, okay, I can manage my life. I can even move forward with my life. And I've got the tools I need to, to deal with things as they come up because well, I would have happily processed all of those memories in that first year and then said, okay, I'm done with it and walked on with my life. That's not the way it unfolded. What happened was I got pregnant with my fifth child. And during his pregnancy, I continued to remember incidents of being raped, molested. And when I say raped, I mean orally, anally, and vaginally raped molested, brutalized, and traumatized during my childhood. 
when my son was born, I remembered very specific incidents of being gang raped at Clinton Valley Center in Pontiac, Michigan. I had always kind of felt like something dark had happened to me while I was there. But during that early postpartum time, like the first week after after he was born, I remembered specifically what happened. Four orderlies were taking me from the doctor down to a seclusion room. I was strapped to a four-point restraint table. I was naked. I just had a sheet over me. And these four guys took me into a little side room and gang-raped me. And then they put me in seclusion. And I've been healing from that, you know. I started to remember 12 years after the psychosis, and I've been healing from that ever since. Total trauma. And another layer of trauma on top of all the childhood stuff. So when Ben was born, as he would reach certain ages that I was when I was assaulted in various ways, he'd turn two and I'd remember something that happened when I was two. He'd turn four and I remember something that happened when he was four, when I was four. And it was like my son was the catalyst for my healing. And I'll always be grateful to him for that because after we had our fourth baby, we were kind of like, yeah, four is good. It feels good. We weren't sure if we'd have any more. I did have two miscarriages in between my fourth and my fifth. But this, this gift from God was given to us in the form of our, our youngest son. And he healed my heart, literally healed it from the inside out as he helped me reconcile all of the trauma. In 2011, I started to have memories of the ritual abuse that happened. And the people who did it were satanic people involved in my church, my school, my community, and I believe my parents were even involved in this coven of people. It's really difficult for me to say that because I don't want to besmirch anybody with my claims. I, the last thing I would want to do would be to hurt anyone who is a part of my church or involved in my faith. I love my faith. I love Jesus Christ. I love being a member of his church and participating in the sacred ordinances that are part of my daily walk as a Latter-day Saint. And so it's difficult for me to say, yes, there was a coven of people in the Detroit area who were using Mormonism as a cover for their nefarious deeds. And yet that is my lived experience. That is what I know. And since that time, I have crossed paths with people like Sarah Ruth Ashcraft, who grew up in a very close part of, I mean, she was like the next town over from me in Birmingham, Michigan. She grew up in a family very similar to mine and has made similar claims. And then again, I've, I've crossed paths with Fiona Barnett. I did the definitive interview with Fiona Barnett two years ago. And then she disappeared. I don't know where she is. She won't answer my calls. Her whole website has been scrubbed. She gave me her blessing to publish her book, Eyes Wide Open, on Kindle. And so I did. But we have not talked in two years. I don't know if she's alive. I don't know if she's in hiding. I don't know if she's dead. I don't know anything. I I wish I did. If you're listening to this and you know her 
or you're in Australia and you know what happened to her, I would love to hear from you. So contact me privately because I would love to hear if she's okay. But Fiona Barnett has probably been the world's top ex, ex she's done the expose of how satanic networks have functioned. And her book is a testimonial to not only how they function, but how you as a victim can heal. And the final section of her book is just the nuts and bolts of how you do that. And reading her book was just such a revelation to me. It helped me on every level and also validated everything that had come throughout the previous years in terms of remembering, reconciling, and then moving forward with our lives. And so that two-hour interview I did with Fiona, it's embedded on my blog. It's honestly been the most trafficked podcast I've done of my whole life. And I know that there are many people looking for the information that Fiona has shared and shared in that interview. So go listen to it. It's fabulous. I believe Heavenly Father helped me to cross paths with Fiona at the very moment that I needed her. And that has also been a divine signature to me of how he has helped me heal. I would read an article or a book or cross paths with a new friend or something online that would just nudge me in the direction I needed to go to further reconcile, but also heal what was off in my heart and my mind. The things that happened to me during ritual abuse sessions are so horrific, I'm not going to talk about them specifically, but I am going to give you an outline of why satanic people do what they do, because that often gets lost in the fog of satanic imagery and the dismissive, oh, Pizzagate's not a thing, oh, these elites, they don't run the government, they don't run the cult, the culture, they're That's all just a fraud. Number one, it's like Fight Club. First rule of Fight Club, there's no Fight Club. It's just like that with satanic stuff. First rule of Satanism is there's no Satan. He doesn't exist. And so how can there be people who worship Satan if Satan is not a thing? So that's the thing you'll hear from from many people who are involved in this. There's no such person as Satan. That's, That's nothing. And so... They, they will dismiss and discredit just there. And then there's nothing else to talk about. They won't engage because it doesn't exist. And, <laughs> you know, sucks to be you, people who are trying to heal from all of your trauma. You, you just made all that up. Your therapist implanted that in your brain. Now, number one, the question is, who would do that? Who is evil enough? What, what therapist would say to themselves, hmm, I know a way to make money. I'm going to convince all these people that they suffered all this ritual and uh, I'll just sit back and make the money and convince them and they'll give up all relationships with their family and friends and, you know, just because I need to make money and they're so dumb that they'll just believe anything I plant in their brain with hypnosis and my suggestive therapeutic style. Number one, I'm not that dumb, you know, I'm not that naive, and I resent anyone who would presume to say, oh, you are so naive and so idiotic that you would allow yourself to have some therapist plant this in your head and convince you that this really happened to you when it didn't happen. No, that's not the way it unfolded. 
my memory started to come up before I met with any therapist. And during my 20s and early 30s, I would hear stories about false memory syndrome. I watched a movie on it one time. I was like, what a load of crap. I watched it and I was so dismissive. In fact, it was so typical of what the posture that Jen just showed us on the Unredacted show was. Oh my gosh, no, that doesn't happen. That's just false memory syndrome. You know, that's how I was during my 20s and early 30s. And so I was like that until I remembered. And then it was like, holy crap, this is a thing. This is real. So here's the basic outline. The satanic amongst us understand a couple of things. Number one, when you traumatize a child before the age of eight, they tend to bury the trauma. It's just a thing. Before the age of eight, if they can molest, if they can torture, if they can ritually abuse, the child will forget and dissociate. And they call this taking them over the rainbow, uh, alluding to uh, the Wizard of Oz and the imagery of the Wizard of Oz, and that when you take a child over the rainbow, uh, they forget. And they're much, much easier to recruit later in their teens and early 20s into all sorts of craziness if they have had this preliminary trauma that kind of primes them for later recruitment. And so I believe that I was ritually abused early when I was seven years old, and I was forced to do something criminal that hurt somebody else and that that was my initiation into the coven as a child. And I I had no memory of that until, gosh, like, I think I first started to remember in 2012. And I checked myself into the mental hospital again for 12 days around that memory because I was so freaked out by it. Did I really do that? Is that a thing? Is that what people do? And I was fortunate to have a psychiatrist who believed me. And I also had a bishop at church who believed me and confirmed. Ironically, he had grown up in a home where his parents brought children into their home who had been um, ritually abused, and they, they gave them a safe space to stay while they were taken out of the homes where they had been hurt. And so he grew up very comfortably aware of this phenomenon, my bishop, and offered me incredible amounts of support and even said things like, yes, they do this to children. They make them do horrifying things to traumatize them. And so, you know, that's what happened to me. They, I had this memory. This was a thing. I committed this crime and my therapist and my bishop um, agreed that that probably is what happened to me. So that was my initiation into the coven. And then once you're in and you are in the pattern, in the habit of dissociating and forgetting, that tends to become a pattern throughout your life where you are sexually assaulted or abused or traumatized you tuck it away and forget 
And then later you come back to it and hopefully reconcile and heal. What the Satanists know is that if they can get you to dissociate enough, they can kind of compartmentalize your traumas in various places places in your brain. And they can bring those up at will through the power of suggestion and various codes. And in this way, they have compromised many people by training them in certain forms of trauma and then using them to do evil things when they're older. And there are many of us who believe, and each year that clicks by, I believe it even more, that those people who have been in positions of power in the various countries and around the world who run our corporations, who run our schools, who basically run everything, have also likewise been compromised, raised up to play leadership roles in various institutions, in the media, and that they are controlled. They're literally controlled by people who are satanic. So when Julian Assange received the DNC emails on a thumb drive from Seth Rich during the summer of 2016 and made the decision to publish some of them right before the election of Donald Trump, there were many of us who are news junkies who watched this very closely who were like, what, what is this? He's talking in code. And people who were aware of the code understood that the emails used codes to describe pedophilia, cannibalism, and various satanic rituals. And they talked to each other in code. And so it was like, wait, are you saying that Obama was controlled by these people, was part of them? Are you saying that the Bush family is involved in this? Uh, other members of Congress, John McCain, what are you saying here? You know, this, this Pizzagate thing was really interesting. And so I immediately dived in and started reading those emails, blogging them, making videos about them, podcasts. What is this? What's going on? Four days before the election, you had the Marina Abramovic stuff drop. And it was just mind-bending to think about Hillary Clinton being our president if she was being controlled by these types of people. And the question is, was Hillary Clinton a witch? And what does a witch do in these circles? Well, witches are expert at traumatizing children, torturing them. And they do this to get the adrenaline flowing in the child's body. So they torture and torture and torture until the child is at peak adrenaline rush. And then they sacrifice the child, capture their blood in a, a glass, and they share the glass and drink the blood and get jacked up on adrenalized blood. And then they have what's called a blood orgy, where they engage in sexual activity with each other and the blood and the baby and the child. And that is a classic satanic ritual. So was Hillary, is Hillary Clinton a witch? Was she a witch? Did we honestly want someone who practices that type of witchcraft 
in charge of America's body politic? There are many of us who quickly absorbed what the Pizzagate claims were, and we're talking about it when all of a sudden we were shut down. I was on the Donald on Reddit talking about these things. We had a subreddit on the Pizzagate phenomenon, and it was shut down, deleted. And then my friend Sherry Kane and I started the oldest and largest Pizzagate research group on Facebook. And that group was in play for several years before it was shut down about 18 months ago. And both of our Facebook identities were pulled, our full channels were pulled, the group was pulled, and we no longer had contact with the members of our group. Sherry died about a year ago of a brain aneurysm after being horrifically traumatized and backed into a corner through the use of lawfare, bullied. They killed her cat, three heart attacks. She just got to the place where she lost the will to live, and she died. And she was one of the most fearless journalists writing about these topics. She outed a group of satanic pedophiles in Los Angeles who were involved involved in child trafficking, and they were also connected to the networks attempting to shut down the anti-vaccination community online. So, again, my lived experience, false memory syndrome or repressed memories, traumatized memories, memories allowed to tuck away in your brain until you are mature enough and old enough to face them memories. This is a good topic for all of us to be talking about right now, because if it's true that as Q and I'm not talking Andre Q, I'm talking Q, the Q people, the Q phenomenon is right, then the world has been run by a coven of satanic people who have used their tactics and their techniques to corrupt and infiltrate and control many, many people in our society. And All I know is that healing and reconciling and remembering my own memories, my own traumas, has freed me like nothing else to let go of all all of the dark, dark memories. When I started to remember in 2012 the ritual abuse, I didn't know it was going to take me 20, I mean, 10 years to move all of that through. But I I can honestly say, I think I'm on the other side, fully on the other side, fully healed. And I'm so grateful for it. I'm, I'm just optimistic that I can live the rest of my days without that just darkness bubbling under the surface. And if I have any message for my fellow survivors out there is don't give up. Don't give in to the temptation to commit suicide. They programmed me that if it ever appeared I was getting well or I was going to remember what they did to me, they programmed me 
to kill myself. That, that was their switch. You know, they, they put this switch in your mind that if this happens, okay, she kills herself. And I was in a highly suicidal state when I checked into the hospital in 2012. Again, not really understanding fully why I was in that state of mind. Questioning, again, why? Why is this here? It doesn't make any sense. I've reconciled all the sexual abuse. What is this? My body and brain saved the worst for last. And the worst was the satanic stuff. And I've been healing it ever since. And it has been difficult. But I have had many moments of exquisite joy, happiness, love, family, friends, music. My life is rich and full. And I will be damned if I will allow those people who programmed me, who wanted me to be a little cog in their machine as a singer, as a musician, as a Mormon. I I damn them to hell for what they did to me, for their audacity and seeking to thwart God's plan and allowing me to have sovereignty over my own body and my own mind. To think that they could bypass that and just turn me into a little puppet? No. No, I have freed myself. And I believe every other compromised person has the ability to free themselves, find their footing on planet Earth, and just move forward with their lives. It's not necessarily easy, but it can be done. And there is no other compromised group in our world than those who are musicians and singers. Satan knows how powerful of a medium music is. And so he doubled down and tripled down to compromise all of our best singers and get them under his power and his control. And I look forward to all of those people being freed to sing whatever music they want, create whatever art they want, and bless the world with their talents rather than seducing our young people to the dark side. I even think there's hope for Madonna. She also grew up in a a place in Michigan very close to where I grew up, and I've thought about her so many times, her career, the role she's played. I feel a little bit weepy because while I did not have the career that she had because I got married and I was focused on my kids and healing, I look at her and I see someone who probably was given all the exact same programming that I was given in the hopes that she would grow up to be exactly the person that she's been, seducing our young people into all kinds of dark things. And all I would say to her and all musicians, all singers everywhere, is come unto Christ and be perfected in Him and loose yourself from the chains that are around your neck. There's no time like right now to do that. There is an army of people who will believe you, who will accept you, who will understand what happened to you and will offer you the hand of fellowship, healing, hope. And my my prayer as we go forward is that everyone who's been compromised will be treated with kindness, forgiveness, understanding, and love. But we can only do that by accepting that this is what's happened to them. And that is where I see the truly demonic sense of what Jen was just proposing during that show. Because this is a 
moral panic, number one, we can't talk about it because to talk about it means we're all crazy and just can't talk about it. And number two, uh, you know, it's not a thing. There's no Satan. There's no satanic group doing horrifying things to children. There's no such thing as child sacrifice. There is no such thing as adrenochrome or using adrenalized blood to drink and get high off of. That's not a thing. And so if that's your posture, it's not a thing. It didn't happen. It's not there. We can't see it. The people who talk about it are crazy. Then we have nothing to talk about, you know. But I'm here to tell you it's real. I've lived it. I've healed from it. And I'm willing to offer the hand of fellowship to anyone out there who is just now realizing that they too were mind-controlled and brought up in these circumstances. So that's my lived experience. Take it for what it is. Um, I believe Satan's real. And I also know that Jesus Christ is more powerful than Satan. And Jesus Christ's healing power, his atonement, is what provided me with the cure. And he is the source. He is my best friend. He can heal you. And I believe eventually all of this satanic, um, I don't know that all of it will come out because, well, maybe it will. We, it's been prophesied in the scriptures. We will reach a day when there will be no more secrets. And I believe that day is fast approaching. So uh, buckle up. We'll see what's around the corner.